beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was just up, actually last Lord's Day, our family wasn't here, we were up in Bellevue, spending time with Miley's brother and family, the, our oldest niece up there, just a little bit older than Calvin, six months, is, was at a lifeguarding recertification deal one of the days we were up there, and we were talking about lifeguarding, and it made me think, I don't really know any life, famous lifeguards, maybe Baywatch or something like that, but any real life famous lifeguards other than Ronald Reagan. He's the guy that I happen to know was a lifeguard in his youth, and he, he grew up in Dixon, Illinois, that was his hometown, and there was a beach there, a little park beach, and he was a lifeguard for one summer. And he pulled 77 people out of the water that one summer, which is kind of astounding. One of the people that I read says, well, some of them might have been young girls just looking to get pulled out of the water by that good-looking Ronald Reagan, and sure he was. You might say, little beach park there, the savior of the beach that year was Ronald Reagan. He was the savior of the beach. He went and he did his job as a lifeguard and he pulled people out of the water and he saved lives and he was the savior of the beach. Now, does that mean there were no incidents at the beach that he couldn't stop? Of course there were. He's the only lifeguard. He didn't save everybody. There were still problems, but he was the savior of the beach. Now, I want you to think of that and think now on a much grander scale, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And I think that's far more impressive and comprehensive than we even start to think. We'll sometimes think that, oh, he's the Savior of the elect. And he is absolutely the Savior of the elect. God sent his Son to save the elect. But that's not all Jesus Christ has done. There's a lot more work of redemption that Jesus has done, even working its way into the physical cosmos. That this place is going to be redeemed by the power of Christ Jesus, the one whom God has sent. He is the Savior of the world. He's most certainly the Savior of the elect. But beyond that, He's also the Savior of the world. There's more to be said and more to be had. We'll continue with that as we go. But I want you to see here, in the New Covenant, and this is what we're dealing with here in Romans 15, this New Covenant move, this move from what was before Jesus, what Jesus did and what He opened up from His work, that's the New Covenant, that there is a move from that Old Covenant into the new, that is an explosion of evangelism. An explosion of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, God's Messiah, Messiah of Israel. There's an explosion of that message and of the receiving of that message all around the world. And there has been this explosion going on for 20 centuries. We're down line from all of that. But we have to understand that it wasn't always that way. Before Jesus was around, there was not that explosion of evangelism. The nations were not coming to the Messiah promised to Israel, but when the Messiah came and did his work, he opened up that new covenant, and we see that it goes out, and we finally see then the engagement with all of these Old Testament prophecies of the nations coming, the nations coming to Israel's God, to, to worship Israel's God, to, to recognize the justice of Israel's laws, that God gave faithful and just laws to Israel, and all these things we see from the Old Testament in anticipation in anticipation of the work of Jesus through the nations, which includes us. It includes us sitting right here. So I want to consider really Jesus in the New Covenant, first couple of verses, 8 and 9 of the section that we're looking at. And secondly, the Scripture and the New Covenant. And finally, the hope of the New Covenant. So first, Jesus and the New Covenant. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. 
For I tell you, says Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, I'll grant you right away, there are three points in that verse, or those two verses, and it would have made just a fine sermon right there. Three points is a right-sized sermon, just in case you don't know that. But they're right there in the text, those three. But we'll, we'll move briefly through this, because I want to capture these verses together, not just the two we read now, but all the way down to verse 13, so you can see the, the strength of them going through, even if there's a lot of, of details that we'll be passing by as we, as we pass over. Jesus has become a servant to the circumcision. That's what the text says. To the circumcised, the circumcision, that is the Jews. Right? Israel, the people of God, marked off by the sign, given the physical sign of circumcision to mark them off from the world. They're not like the rest of the world. They're not like the rest of the nations. They're God's own people. Holy to God. A holy nation unto God. And Jesus came to that nation to serve them. Now, this is an interesting little story from Matthew 15. Because we have this notion in our minds that, well, that Jesus was so nice that he couldn't not be nice, and like he was just nice and nice and nice, and that was it. He was nice. Nice guy. Well, no. No. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a man. He's on a mission. And there are things he has to deal with. He has plenty of not nice things to say uh, to people. They're not necessarily rude or certainly not sinful. But we can't sugarcoat everything, can we? We have to speak directly, or in this case, not even speak. Uh, listen to this from Matthew chapter 15, how he handles this Gentile woman, starting at verse 21. I'll just read it to you. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, so outside of Israel. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Okay, well, that's quite an approach right there to begin with. Uh, she knows who he is. She identifies who he is. She recognizes the problem, and then he can help her. He's the one who can do it. What does he do? But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. She's irritating us. Would you get rid of her? Jesus won't even talk to her. He won't even acknowledge her. He just lets her keep asking and keep after him, and apparently after his disciples as well. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, she's not being put off yet. He answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, this is a very interesting story and, and moving in many ways, uh, particularly if just taking a sidestep. How do you pursue Jesus? Sidestep of an application. Are you after God for the things that he is fully capable of doing and says, come ask me? Or do you just kind of ask once and then forget about it? Or do you pursue God the way this Gentile woman is pursuing Jesus, even through silence? I think we feel that from God sometimes, like he's being silent. But how about even through insults? It's not right to take what belongs to the children and throw it to the dogs, woman, your daughter. Do you get it? 
We have to persevere through all kinds of struggles in prayer with our God. And he bids us to do so. And notice how Jesus says, woman, what great faith you have. Be it done according to your desire. Pursue your God in prayer. Don't give up. Be persistent. Be tenacious in your prayers. Because God says, boldly approach my throne, which is for you in Christ Jesus, Christian, a throne of grace. Paul says, Jesus was a servant to the circumcision. This is what he means right here. Jesus came to his own people, Israel. He came to the covenant people of God. He didn't go to the Amalekites. He didn't go to the Athenians with all their wisdom. He didn't go to the Romans with all their power. He went to Israel. Because Israel is God's people. He went to the covenant people of God. And in doing so, as we'll see, he opened up that covenant and that, that, the, the treasures of the covenant to all the peoples of the world. Jesus did that for us. But here we have Jesus has become a servant to the circumcision. That is, in his incarnation, in his life's ministry, finally in his death at the hands not only of the Gentiles, but also of the Jewish leaders, and his resurrection. All of that is a ministry to Israel to save Israel. We get that from John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes. We know this about you. Israel needs to be reborn. Israel needs new life. Jesus Christ has come to do it. He's come to minister to the circumcision. And he did that, Paul says, as a demonstration of God's faithfulness. Look at the text. Of God's faithfulness to what? Jesus' ministry to the circumcision is is a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his promises. What he has promised to the fathers. Now, which fathers are we talking about? I think whenever you read in the scriptures the fathers, you should at least think Abraham. That should be like your first thought, Father Abraham. He did have many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so are you and so on. Right? That he's the father of the faithful. But then he's just the first of, the, of those fathers. We could go back before him as well and say, well, how about Isaac? How about Jacob? How about Joseph? And so on. These are the fathers, the patriarchs of Israel, and God made promises to them. God made promises to them, and Jesus Christ came showing that he was fulfilling those promises made to the fathers before he was around, before his incarnation. You think, well, where is, where is a promise that would apply here, and, and especially in this context of this opening to the Gentiles that we're looking at? And you can think right back to the beginning of the covenant God made with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply you and I'm going to make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now again, talk about a grandiose promise to an old man. But there it is. God does that. He likes to keep us kind of on the edge. He likes to keep us wondering, how is he going to do this? Or maybe... For us, for those of us with slighter faith, is he going to do it? Is he really going to come through and do what he said he's going to do? And faith always says yes. And Jesus Christ, the answer is yes and amen. God's doing it, God has done it, and God will do it. And we have here the ministry that to Israel was a fulfillment of the promises made to the fathers. Not only to bring the Messiah to Israel, we have many, 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 many promises from the Old Testament promising Messiah to come and redeem Israel, but also to redeem the nations, the rest of the world too. Not just one nation, but all the nations. 
that Abraham would be a blessing to every family of the earth. And so we have that promise that Jesus Christ is the demonstration of the fulfillment and faithfulness of God in keeping his promises. If you want to understand the promises of God, you want to grab on to the promises of God, you don't do it anywhere other than through the scripture in Jesus Christ. The promises of God are right in the scripture for us. You need to dig them out and find them. More on that in a moment. But the answer to that is Jesus. All the promises of God are yea and amen in him. And here is this great promise, not only to redeem Israel, but to redeem the world. And it's found where? In Christ Jesus. In Jesus himself. And this promise here, as we see at the end of this little section, is that the Gentiles may glorify God. That, that all the peoples of the world, that's of course, I say it all the time, and maybe it's worth saying something basic, but Gentile means nation. And, and nation means other nation. For Israel, as far as Israel is concerned, Israel's one of the nations, and they would uh, historically, and even in the text of the Old Testament, would say that. But they're a special nation, right? They're they're a covenant nation of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation to God. But all the other nations, they're lost in idolatry. They're worshiping false gods. They're hopelessly lost. There's no hope for those nations out there, except in the outlandish promise of God. To old man Abraham and his sons and so on, saying, I will make you, Abraham, a blessing to all the families of the earth. One reason I think that as we land in this section of Romans and kind of taking a step back, remembering this issue has been going on since the 13th chapter, really, or all certainly through the 14th and into the 15th, is the issue of Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body and having problems. Okay, that's the, 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 the problem is not the wickedness or sinfulness on one side and righteousness on the other, but rather things that are indifferent that we can do or not do that we're having trouble with in interpersonal relationships within the church because some people are strong, as Paul says, and others are weak. And he doesn't really mean by that, by the way, that strong are just more mature spiritually. I don't know if that's exactly it. I don't think it's exactly it. It's, it has to do specifically with the, the freedoms that we have in Christ. What we're free to do in Christ Jesus with no pain of conscience, with a clear conscience, what we're able to do. And some people say, I couldn't do that. Uh, and this, again, isn't an issue of sin. We're not saying, hey, I'm free in Christ to commit adultery. That's not it. Right? But I am free in Christ to collect baseball cards. I am free in Christ to eat meat or drink wine and these other things. And so as we look at that convergence, that confluence of Jew and Gentile and some of the quibbles and the taboos and everything built into that, it kind of makes a mess there in the first century. And it makes a mess that's particular to its own time. It's hard to find parallels in our own moment to what's going on here in the first century. Because it's in this first century, in Christ, and in his apostolic ministry in Christ, that this new body of Jew and Gentile is being brought together, and there's some growing pains right to begin with. Right? And these are the sorts of pains that can happen all the time. But the first century was a peculiar time. It's when this was work started going on and the growing page started. And as we've noticed, that the church went Gentile like crazy. It didn't take very long before the Gentiles just exploded all around the world, around the Roman world. And the Jews came, but less and less. In any event, we have this confluence of Jew and Gentile in the Christian church in the first century that gives rise to all of these problems, these working problems among the people of God. And here's the idea. It gives each Christian... Each Christian the opportunity to love one another, to prefer one another, 
Not to prefer one's own comfort or to please oneself, but to look to please God by pleasing one another. And that's the whole section here we're dealing with. Right? So as we're talking about this great evangelism of the world, one of the byproducts of this great evangelism, as it's starting here in the time of Paul, I mean, how do you get people together from these vastly different backgrounds with different understandings of how they should live and what they should do? And of course, the simple answer right in the middle is, it is written. It is written. And that brings us to the second section, which if you, which is the, the quotations here. We've got to get back to Romans. The quotations starting in verse 9 and running down to the 12th verse. There's an Anglican bishop, or an Episcopal bishop, that just died this month. He died in March, and I just heard a report of him, actually, it was on Al Mohler, was talking about this. Anyway, here's a Bishop Griswold, in response to a query and a question put to him about the Bible and human sexuality. In other words, you know, should the Bible um, guide us as Christians, or as people, as humans, in our sexuality? Um, is that something Christians should be like offering as biblical counsel? On this sort of thing. His response was this. It's short. We worship a living God, not one locked up in the scriptures of 2,000 years ago. Now, that's a compelling answer to a lot of people. Like, I don't want a God locked up in scriptures of 2,000 years ago. Well, in the first place, Bishop Griswold should be slapped for saying this. That's the first thing. It's just silly. I mean, what he's characterizing Christianity and his understanding of the scripture very badly because he doesn't like the scripture. He doesn't like what it teaches, so he needs to make sure that he demonizes it. Uh, but nonetheless, we do worship a living God, the true and living God, who lives and interacts with people. But he does so by his word, by the word of scripture, by the preaching of that scripture, by the reading of it, the meditation upon it. It's a tool of the Holy Spirit, the living God, to interact with us. It's not that God's locked up in a text of 2,000 years ago. It's that God has revealed himself over the course of thousands of years in text, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is the true and living God. So Bishop Griswold missed the boat. He wants to make it up right now. He wants God to be after our image and our likeness. And so if our image and our likeness is free for homosexuality and other sexual perversions, well, certainly we have to get rid of the Bible. We can't have this thing around anymore, because it won't let us. Because we worship the true and living God, not a God locked up in Scripture 2,000 years ago. What a damn fool of a bishop. It's a bishop in the church of Jesus Christ who says something as foolish as that. Unlike Bishop Griswold, I do like his last name, Unlike Bishop Griswold, this, Paul recommends us to read the Scriptures. Look up at verse 4. You grab that book again. Look at verse 4 of Romans chapter 15. For whatever was written in the former days, which is to say what? Like the Old Testament. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. The Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days for, uh, was written for our instruction... That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, so there's, there's an endurance that God gives us. And of course, it's the God of endurance and, and encouragement that is speaking through the scripture, as we talked about two weeks ago. But God's given us the scripture, not so we can just kind of know the old stories, but so that we can figure out our spot in them. How they inform us and, and how we're living. This is God's word. And it's written down for us. 
Is the scripture, Christian, a treasure to you? Do you treasure that holy book? Is it something that maybe you even take out with shaking hands? Saying, what am I taking hold of here? It's not just Hemingway. It's not just Shakespeare. It's not just a book. Not that those books aren't worth your time. They are. This is the holy book. Christian, this is your God's speech to you. How often do you take it up to meditate upon it? To read it and rejoice in it. To rejoice in what it gives you and what it gives you is Jesus Christ. Messiah. We rob ourselves day by day when we do not open the scriptures to read them and meditate upon them and seek our God's loving and gracious face in them. That is where God reveals himself. He's not locked in the scripture of 2,000 years ago. He gives himself away freely in that scripture of 2,000 years ago. And he's been doing so ever since. And will continue to do so until this process we're talking about right now, the evangelization of the world, the discipleship of his people, is complete. So let me, like Paul, recommend to you, open the scriptures, Christian. Open the scriptures day to day, many times a day. Meditate upon them. Memorize the scriptures. Read them. Know the book. For in it God ministers life by his spirit through those words. Now, Paul, look, as we look at his quotations here, you can see if you have, maybe in your study Bible or something like that, you can see the notes come from Samuel, and come from the Psalms, uh, and come from Deuteronomy, and come from, uh, finally, of course, Isaiah that he, that he lists there. He's not, Paul's grabbing these quotes from different places in the Old Testament, and he's arranging them thematically. Now, you might not notice the theme as you're looking at it, but I'll show it to you right now. It's not very hard to see. Where do we start there? With the first quotation of scripture, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Okay, so we have the faithful one of Israel praising the name of God where? In the midst of the Gentiles. They can see it. They can hear it. Right? The, the faithful is praising. The unfaithful out there hear it. Again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Okay, the people of God, Israel is rejoicing. Now come with us and do it. So first they see and they hear, and then there's a call to them to come. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. They're not just seeing and hearing the faithful doing it. They're not just even called in to do it with them. They're doing it. They're praising and extolling the true and living God, all the Gentiles. And finally, we get the root of it here. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. The fullness and clarity of it, oh, Jesus Christ has come. He will rule the Gentiles. He's God's Messiah, not just over Israel, to be Israel's Messiah, but over all the nations. To build his kingdom out of Jew and Gentile in one new man, as we read in other parts of the New Testament as well. So you can, you can see the progression, right? From the, from the Gentiles knowing that praising Yahweh is going on, to being called into it, to doing it themselves, to finally getting, yes, this is, we're ruled over. Jesus the Messiah is the king of not just Israel, but of all the nations as well. So you can see as, as Paul's grabbing these quotes from the Old Testament, from the scripture, he's arranging them thematically. Now that right there is an argument for a systematic theology. 
Systematic theology is the kind of orderly arranging of ideas that we find in the Scripture. Scripture is not a systematic theology. Maybe Romans is the closest we get to it, or Ephesians, as far as that goes. A systematic kind of uh, uh, orderly giving of doctrine, the fullness of Christian doctrine, something like that. But we can see, at least in the way Paul's handling the Old Testament, he sees it thematically. He recognizes the theme through Scripture, even if it's not just one point to the next, right? He, he can pull from Scripture and show this theme, and the theme is the Gentiles are called to come. First they hear and see Israel, they're called to join Israel, they begin to praise, and then the Lord Jesus Christ is the very root of all of that and rules over the Gentiles. Again, God is showing his plan here. This is the plan, this is a little bit of a summary of a good deal of the book of Romans going on in this passage. Paul shows here that he worked in Israel, that they should praise and worship him, that through Israel all of the nations should come. God called one man, made a nation out of him, Israel, and through that very nation, into that very nation, sent his son, that he should redeem them and redeem all the nations into that nation, as we'll consider in a second, as well. Now, again, the nation's coming in and being brought in is a messy business. It's hard to figure this thing out, and there are a lot of troubles in the New Testament church around Jews and Gentiles. In fact, when you read the New Testament, that's the major issue. What the issues of, you know, how to, how to deal with Gentiles as Jews and how to deal with Jews as Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give this to you. Growth is hard and messy. Growth is hard and messy. That's just the way it goes. Proverbs 14.4 says, where there is no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. You want a clean barn, or do you want the crops? Christian, you want a clean barn? You want no problems? You want you want a church situation, or a family situation, or even an individual situation, where everything is just put in its place. Everything's right where it needs to go, perfect. Then you can look forward to no growth. If you want growth, you're going to have to deal with a mess. That goes in your family. Anyone who's been a parent knows that. If you want growth, you've got to have a mess. There's a mess at home. There's always a mess. And it's not just the mess on the floor and the mess on the counter and all those messes too. You bet. But it's an emotional mess. It's a spiritual mess. It's all kinds of trials and turmoil in order to achieve the growth that God has called us to have. There is no growth without struggle. That goes for this church too. It goes for every one of us as brothers and sisters bound together by covenant in this body of Christ. We're going to have some trials here. We're going to have some struggles here. But you know what? There's a great amount of fruit on the other side of that struggle. That's how God's made it to be. It was that way in the first century, and it's that way right now as well. God doesn't call us to our personal comforts. He gives us comforts. He'll grant those to us, and that's great and wonderful. He calls us to struggle. He calls us to be uncomfortable. He calls us to work hard and get messy. And trust him that he will supply the crops that come from the strength of the ox. So Christian, be encouraged by the scripture. Open God's word because it is the God of hope who speaks in that word and says, I know you're struggling. I know it's hard. In fact, God knows it because he's put those challenges in your life. It's not as if he's up there just kind of looking and noticing, oh yeah, it's pretty tough for Ed down there. He knows it because he's given it. 
He knows it's tough for you because he's given it. He is your heavenly father and he rules over all things and he does so well. Do you trust him? And can you hang in there by his power, by his grace, resting in him, trusting in the God of hope? Up next. And say, okay, I can hang in there. I can deal with the mess. I can deal with the struggle. God, give me power to move forward and see the fruit. God, I want to see the fruit. I don't want to see the struggle. I want to see the fruit. So hang on, Christian. And look for the fruit. Look for that enormous payoff of the work of the ox that took all that mess and everything to finally get ready so you could get the work done. And I don't know what it is in your life. God does. But He will see you through, Christian. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. In fact, He'll make you fruitful 30, 60, 100-fold. Trust your God and look to His Word for your encouragement. That's what Paul's giving us here. At the end of the book of Romans, we're getting pretty close to the end here. Look to the Scriptures, he says. Read the Scriptures. Meditate upon the Scriptures. Memorize the Scriptures because it's in them that God gives you the encouragement that you need. It's in them that He gives Himself to you through Christ Jesus. Finally, the hope of the New Covenant. That's really it. This is kind of where we're going. There's, there's enormous hope that's laid before us here in this text. Well, what, what is hope? We use the word hope, but what do we mean? If I said something like, I sure, sure hope it doesn't rain on my birthday, I'm expressing a kind of wish, a kind of desire. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward, but it's a nebulous and an uncertain wish. I have no power if it rains or doesn't rain on my birthday. I just kind of hope it doesn't. That's not biblical hope. That's just like a wish. That's fine. We all do that. We, we talk that way and we, we operate that way. But it's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confidence. A confidence in something that has not yet occurred. Hasn't, has not come to, to realization yet. But a confidence that it will. An expectation that it will. Now, again, not a hope, well, it would be nice if this or that happened. It would be nice if Jesus came again. It would be nice if Jesus judged the living and the dead. Um, it, it would be nice. And it will happen. right? The surety of Christ, I will do this. We have hope, then, that he'll do it. That's what the word means. It's a, it's a confidence in something that has not yet occurred, and particularly waiting on God, trusting in his promises that have not yet come to pass in our lives. Now, if we talk about confidence in God, I think there's another problem we can step in, and that is just kind of basic God talk. You hear it all the time. People talk about God this and God that, but they don't mean the true living God at all. At all. They just have God to talk about. And I suggest that as Christians, we be careful of that. We be careful of just bare God talk, rather than saying, which God? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as he's referred to here in our text, just above what we read. He is the living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed the Father to humanity and poured out his Spirit so that the humanity who is dead in sin could come to life and praise the Father through the Son by the Spirit, one God eternal. That's the God we're talking about. That's the God of the Scriptures, the triune God of Scripture. In him we have hope. Not in God, whoever that may be. Little g, whatever, just God talk. No, we're talking about the triune God of Scripture, the one who sent His Son, the Father who sent the Son, and the Father and Son who breathed out the Spirit and poured out the Spirit on the church. Right, that's the God we're talking about. That's important for us to remember which God we're talking about. And when we're talking, to be clear, 
so that there is no confusion. Now, if we are to rest in the promises of God, even as Jesus came to fulfill those promises to Israel by bringing in the Gentiles, what are some of those promises we can hear right now? And we can grab on to, we can say, okay, God, I got this. I'll sink my hands and teeth into this thing. I'll hang on to this for dear life. Because sometimes, Christians, I think it is very much like that. We don't have much to hope in. Right? We can, it, it, listen, it takes almost nothing for our lives to go sideways. It takes the power going out for two days. And we're gone. Right? It takes, it takes very little money in our savings account at the end of the month. But, ah, things were all control. It doesn't take much for the veneer to come off and our helplessness to be revealed. I hope you know that. We're all deeply helpless right under the surface. <laughs> right under the surface. And so the hope that we have is really in God himself. The true and living God who changes not. Who makes promises Christian and keeps them. Now, here are a couple ones. Here's from John chapter 6. Listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says and how it's a promise and you can grab onto it and you can take it and keep it. And if everything else goes crazy, you can still keep this. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. There's your Calvinism text right there and your limited atonement and everything else built in right into this text right here. So he's not going to lose anything. He's going to get every one of the elect and he's going to bring them to salvation. That's what he's saying there. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have ever eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Christian, Jesus says that the Father gave you to him. He's going to keep you, and he's going to raise you up on the last day. That's the promise of Jesus Christ to you. Here's another one similar. I, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, so it's not just for each of us individually. That's it too. We've got to grab onto this thing. But Jesus' view, his, his view, he's saving the world. Expansive view of what Jesus is doing. And he gave for the life of the world his very flesh. Finally, this one, from John 14. From John 14, listen to these sweet words from the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as he speaks them, knows that he is getting ready to leave. He spent the last three years with these disciples. He's nurtured them. He's taught them. He's cried with them. He's laughed with them. He's going to lay down his life for them and then leave. And they're worried. They're concerned. They don't know what's going on. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Here's Jesus comforting his disciples in their hour of need before his crucifixion, saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
I told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. I told you I'm going to come back and get you. I told you you're going to be with me forever. Christian, Jesus Christ has gone to prepare a place for you. He's going to come and get you. You will be with him forever. We will be with him forever. Now, does that provide enough for you to grab onto, Christian? To suffer the struggles and trials of daily life? What if you've got kids that are acting up? What if you've got parents that are tough? Or you've got disease, or you've got things that hurt, or you've got neighbors that are dying? All these problems that happen. Is Jesus Christ saying, I tell you, I'm preparing a place for you, I'm going to come get you, and you'll be with me forever. Is that enough? To cover those other things? To put a whole different hue, a whole different light on those things? Say, yeah, these are, these are trials, and they're hard. But God's giving them to you. In order to grow you up in Christ so that when he comes, you're ready to go. You're not waffling around in indecision and lack of faith, but you're strong in faith. Waiting for the Lord. Waiting for that redemption that's coming. And the darker it gets here, the happier that full redemption looks. The happier these promises Jesus Christ has made to come to receive us to himself and forever to be with him. They sound better and better and better the darker it gets here. Now remember, we Gentiles used to be, Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, without God and without Christ in the world, and therefore without hope. We didn't have hope as Gentiles. We had fake gods that we served. We had demons that we were bound by. And so the gospel came and freed us from all of that. And I preached the gospel to you this morning for your freedom. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And was taken back to his Father's right hand and now rules over all the nations. And in his name, as his minister, I tell you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come. Listen up. Don't look down. Look in my eyes. Christ calls you today. Christ calls you into his hope today. Christ calls you into his salvation today. But the first step is this. Knowing that you're absolutely not worthy of any of it. Not a piece of it. It's all grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace to Israel. And it's grace upon grace to all the nations. It is the reign of Jesus Christ. Behold, Christian, the reign of your king over these many centuries, drawing all the peoples unto himself. He's not done yet. You know why? Because all of the elect are not redeemed yet. That means we need to keep talking. We need to keep loving. We need to keep serving. We need to keep giving ourselves away. And not just ourselves. And not just hands and feet. But the very words of the gospel. The very truth of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Because I won't say it's magic. The gospel's magic. I'll say the Holy Spirit that uses the gospel is absolute magic. Turning people from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Not because we're conniving them. Not because we're trying to get in there and, and do a sales pitch. Not because, I can say, everyone put their heads down. Okay, lift up your head if you heard the gospel message. Okay, I saw you. Okay, I saw you. And all that mess that people do. That's not it. Here's what it is. I'm not worthy of it. He's fully gracious in Christ Jesus. All my sins are covered. He's told me so. He's told me He's going to come and get me. I'll forever be with Him. Not because I'm worthy. But because God is so gracious and so loving. Would you reject that gospel? Would you reject that good news? Let me tell you this. That if you do, if that's like, yeah, okay, pastor, get done. 
then hell is for you. Punishment is for you. The gospel is, the good news is good news relative to a lot of bad news. And if you say, ah, good news, good news, I don't care, then you're sleepily on your way to judgment. And I warn you in the name of Jesus Christ right now, repent and turn, or your end will be far worse than you imagine. Jesus Christ has come to save the world. He is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of all the nations, of Israel and all the nations. What an amazing salvation we have in Him. It's bigger and grander and more extensive and deeper than we ever think. It's always that way. The more we press into Christ, the more riches we find. But when we recognize the riches here of God through Christ to the world, to the world, that everyone should hear and come. God wants people from all nations, kindreds, and tongues. He has them picked out from all eternity. So that you should go open your mouth and tell them the good news that they should hear it and believe it and come join us. That they can see us worshiping. We're calling them to worship. They're worshiping the Lord. And we say, yes, it's through Christ Jesus, that root of Jesse. The, the ruler of all the nations who then brings us to, to God, the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, this is good news for us. Receive it. Rejoice in it. And go forth in it with your mouth open, with your hands open, with your feet moving to serve God who redeems his elect and will not be stopped. Amen.